0: Hey, ass kickers. Welcome to another episode of the recovery series on the Your ass Life podcast. And some of you may know, but most of you probably don't. My father died on Sunday the 16th. I'm currently in California. I was here one weekend. The days are all kind of running together for me. I was here for a long weekend when he kind of got really sick and knew I was going to turn around and come back fairly quickly. He was declining pretty rapidly and was home for five days in North Carolina, caught on a plane and came back when they told me to come. And I was back home, my hometown of San Diego for 24 hours about. And he died on the 16th at 9.02 PM. I was there with him and, um, it was horrible. And I hadn't planned on going into a lot of detail in the intro for this podcast. I will, in a future episode, tell the story when I'm ready, probably a few months from now. And I think I just wanted to say a couple of things about it before we get into the recording of Don Nickel. First of all, my dad was sober. My dad got sober on November 3rd in 1993 when I was just 18 years old. And so I had a introduction to what it looks like to be a very high functioning alcoholic as he was and what it looks like to get sober with help. He was a active member of Alcoholics Anonymous and that's when it was time for me to get sober. It was an easy transition for me having seen him do that and having seen, seeing him have success in that 12 step program. So for that, I am eternally thankful for him. When we were going through his things, this was before he died, when he was sick, I was staying at his house with my stepmother and, and him. I was going through some of the books on his bedside table and he had some of his recovery books and I took them because I just had to have them and they have his notes in there and things like that. So that was a big part of his life and a big part of his recovery was that. And the other thing I wanted to mention about this was that I am so grateful for my sobriety and recovery right now. I have never lost anyone in my life ever that I was close to. And I was unprepared. I mean, how do you prepare yourself for something like that? I was unprepared. It happened so quickly, he got sick. I started to get sick around the middle of September. He went through tests for a couple of weeks. They were trying to figure out what it was. And then I got word that very first week of October and died on the 16th. So it was very, very fast. And so being completely unprepared and sort of thrust into this sort of hurricane of shit and then being sober. So I can guarantee you that if I had still been drinking, I would be drunk right now. I would be drunk through this whole process because grief is weird. I've been through different kinds of grief. The other grief, like the other really tremendous grief that I went through 10 years ago was different than this. And I was telling my friend Lisa, the only word I can use to describe this is sorrow. It's just really great sorrow. That I feel, and it's strange and unfamiliar and all encompassing and confusing. Like it doesn't have, I feel like it doesn't have any pattern. I've only been in it as I'm recording this, it's only been a few days, and it's been a roller coaster. I mean, that's an understatement. It's just up and down, and one minute I'm fine, and the next minute I am not. And so I picked a moment where I feel okay to hit record and get this together for you. So the episode coming up that you're about to hear was recorded several weeks ago. And what I have decided to do is put the rest of the recovery series on hold until January. And the rest of the episodes will come out then. I haven't recorded them yet. You know, my life kind of got put on hold over the last couple of weeks. So I had to cancel all of those. And at any rate, I need some time. I think is all I'm I'm trying to say. And they will definitely reconvene. I have all the people lined up. I'm excited to talk to them and share their stories with you. And I just, I have to put it on hold to take care of myself and some other things. So that being said, thank you for listening and thank you for being here. And thank you for making a commitment to your own sobriety, to your own recovery. Or if you're listening, just to get a better insight into tools and things like that for someone else or for yourself or whatever. I'm just grateful that you're here and I'm grateful for the Your Kick-Ass Life community and I'm grateful for being able to feel my feelings and walk into this fire because there's still a part of me that wants to run away from it and run away with some kind of numbing mechanism. And I haven't and I know that I won't. And it's scary as shit, but I think I've mentioned several times on the podcast about self-trust and that's something that I've learned to do over the last few years, slowly but surely. And what that looks like is trusting my emotions and trusting that my body knows what to do and trusting that I'm going to be okay on the other end. And then some moments I'm like, you know what? I trust it so much that I'm probably going to be even better on the other end. I think one of the other things I didn't realize walking into this, I knew grief would be kind of earth shattering and very sad. Obviously I didn't know that it was going to change me that I had no idea. I don't know if it's just oblivion or I don't know. I just didn't know. But what I have found out is that you cannot walk through this kind of fire and come out the same person on the other end. So that's where I'm at. And it sucks, but I'm going to be okay. And I think that's it. So Dawn Nickel is here and she's amazing. I loved this talk with her. She has an incredible story that spans decades. And let me tell you a little bit about Dawn. Dawn celebrated 16 years clean from all drugs and alcohol in May 2016. In Dawn's view, we are all recovering from something and we are stronger together. Isn't that the truth? Since 2012, Dawn has dedicated herself to creating and holding space online and offline for women in recovery to connect with themselves and with other like-hearted women. So without further ado, here is Dawn. Welcome back to the Your Kick-Ass Life podcast recovery series. And I am joined today by Dawn Nickel. Dawn, thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure, Andrea. I'm, I'm so grateful to have these conversations. This is something I've never done before on the podcast is talk specifically about sobriety and recovery. And I'm just honored to have the caliber of it's been all women now so far. And for anyone who is interested to hear more about work, we're, we're probably going to give resources and things like that. You can find everything in the show notes at your kickass life.com forward slash R five. So dawn yeah. uh, <laughs> we start out each of these these episodes with taking some time to hear your story. I feel like, and I've said this before, I feel like it's important for us to get, kind of, you know, like the entire timeline of your story. And I, cause I want people to hear the progression of what took place in all of these stories, because, you know, we heard from Holly Whitaker, I think it was last week and, you know, like you hear the ending of her story and it was pretty bad, but she wasn't like that in the very beginning. And so I like to kind of pull, you know, be able to pull all the elements of what was going on. And so you have been drug and alcohol free since I believe it's 1989. So will you kind of start even before that and tell us your story?
1: Sure, absolutely. Let me just qualify that. First off, in the last 27 years, I've been clean and sober every day but two. And I guess I can get to that when I'm talking into talking about my story. But, you know, I just started out as a Gangly little kid with two older brothers and a younger sister who came along later in my parents' marriage. She's eight years younger than I am and grew up in a family that looked pretty good on the outside. We were—I was born and raised in Montreal, Quebec. I'm a Canadian. You know, we had a lovely home and a pool, and we were dressed really nicely, and we went to nice schools and had lovely holidays with gifts and all of those things. But the thing that was lacking in our family was a kind of any emotional attachment and attention. And obviously, years of therapy later, I'm okay with the way that I was raised. I understand that my parents did the very best that they could. Mm -hmm. I know that they, you know, in their later years, my mom passed away 16 years ago. She had some regrets about the way she raised us, you know, saying that they were always more focused on working and making the house nice and those types of things that they didn't really take a lot of time to teach us things about getting along as siblings you know we were more or less always told just don't talk to each other at the kitchen table or in the car because we would get rowdy or fight or you know those things that kids do and I think back in the 60s parents just didn't have the information that we have now right about how you need to talk to kids about your emotions so I forgive and I'm not I kind of don't hold on to a grudge about the way we were raised but I also recognize that not having any kind of emotional intelligence or being just kind of neglected in that Mm -hmm. area of our lives certainly did lead to me turning into a teenager who didn't really know much about how to process feelings once they started coming up. You know, I didn't know. I knew how to be quiet at home. I knew how to be funny at school because I really did. I was an attention seeker because I wasn't getting what I thought I needed at home. So I was the class clown. And So part of that just kind of turned into, I think, common for so many of us. I was like a chameleon. Whoever I was with, I would kind of take on that persona. So no surprise, we moved out west when I was 15. And I just kind of started hanging out with some people who were funny and loud and seemed like they were having a pretty good time. And found out we had a lot in common in terms of their parents were never home and kind of paying attention to them either. So we ended up that gang of kids, you know, that ends up at other people's houses with no parental or adult supervision and experimenting with all sorts of things. You know, the old sex drugs and rock and roll. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> that was really kind of my life for a few years there. So I very quickly became addicted to alcohol initially and I think that that was because scientifically we know that when young people start abusing substances it affects them much more deeply than if we waited until, well, in the States, if you wait till you're 21, you kind of have a better chance of not getting addicted. But Mm -hmm. the young teenage brain is very sensitive to substances. So right away, I mean, the first time I ever drank, I blacked out, which is pretty unreal. I think I haven't heard other people talk Mm -hmm. about that. So and I threw up like all over the place. It was a good indicator, but I wasn't very good at paying attention to indicators back then. So I kept going. And within a year, some things were happening in our family. My parents We're having some troubles, and and I, you know, having moved at that age, it can be a little bit tricky for teenage girls, and I think boys as well. You don't know who you are, and then you're kind of transplanted into this new place where you really now don't know who you are, and you don't have the comfort of your friends that you've had around for your life.
0: You're already awkward and then put into an awkward situation. Yeah,
1: you're just so screwed up, right? So after a year of being screwed up in Edmonton, Alberta, I kind of ran away to the Yukon with my best friend, Val, who was from the Yukon. I was 16 years old. I quit school on a dare, kind of. I dared my parents. You know, I got in trouble for something. I think I had a party and they found drugs when they came home. And I think maybe we almost got kicked out of the apartment that we were living in. Really nice apartment. (laughs) And they threatened me with something or other. And I said, well, fine. If you ground me, I'm quitting school, thinking they're, of course, not going to ground me or they're going to just say, well, whatever. Just go to your room. They called your bluff. They called my bluff and said, fine, then you better get a job. I and know, how old were you now? at this point? Like, do you I, remember? Was, I was 16. 16. It was not a good parental decision, clearly, you know, but they came from a place where they had to quit school when they were in their teens, or my mom did anyway, so it just made sense to her. They had more control over me than they thought. So I quit school and I ran away to the Yukon and then I was just kind of immersed in this adult lifestyle with people who are in their 20s and doing more serious drugs. I started using cocaine. I was smoking a lot of pod. I had high anxiety my whole life. I didn't really realize how much until actually the last five years I've kind of rewritten my life story based on this thread of anxiety that runs through it. But I started using prescription pills. So yeah, I was just kind of a real mess. By the time I was Seventeen. On my 17th birthday, I ended up in the hospital with alcohol poisoning. It was suggested to me at that time that I should stop drinking. And I actually thought, yeah, I probably should. So from the time I was 17, so drank the first time I was 15. By the time I was 17, I had alcohol poisoning. And from that moment on, I have this story of about 10 years of trying to manage substances, you know, quitting off and on, switching over to something else. You know, I actually got to a point where I remember, and this I'm not particularly proud of this, but it's kind of weird. I was working in a bar. I was only 18 years old, and I was supposed to be 19 to work in a bar in the Yukon. And I decided to quit drinking, but I didn't know what to do with myself when we were sitting around with people drinking. So I actually started drinking cough syrup out of a brandy snifter. Oh, my God. Which is, isn't that insane? And you know, the, the most insane thing about it was at the time I thought I was funny and cute and yeah. really creative. Me, people around me didn't know I was doing that. So I also was slightly ashamed, I think.
0: Isn't that amazing? So, like, I just want to stop for a second. Like how we, and when I say we, I mean addicts, like that yeah. we convince ourselves that those kinds of decisions are okay because I had a similar I told this story a couple podcasts ago when I relapsed I decided to drink NyQuil and vanilla extract because I didn't want to break my four and a half months of sobriety but I still wanted the buzz but I thought it was like a loophole yeah
1: yes (laughs) oh my goodness I know right and it it, for me it only took me like
0: five or ten minutes to realize like that was kind of bullshit but I had already drank it and I was like oh Jesus but yeah there was like that moment of time where I was like oh that's okay
1: like I get it. I totally get it. And, you know, I, I, I used to drink Neocitrin with vodka in it.
0: Oh my God. I don't, I don't know what that, that it. is. I,
1: hope, I know. I hope I'm not
0: giving anybody out there. I, we're not giving That's people okay. ideas I mean, out there. <laughs> it happens. Yeah. I got the yeah. idea for the vanilla extract from an AA speaker. So it happens. There you go. <laughs> Share the information.
1: <laughs> so again, from the time I was probably between 16 and 19 overdoses, and alcohol each time. I think there were, you know, I can't even remember when I go back now, if I have to sit down and think through them, three, maybe four overdoses there was just always, like, I was screaming for help, right? That's what it was. I really, I don't ever recall wanting to die. Like, I don't really think I wanted to die. I just wanted help, or I just wanted to blot out the pain.
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, the pain was, is often the case, at least in my experience and my observation, a lot of it was related to relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a little bit of a love addict, and it was a shit show. Mm -hmm. And I just, yeah, it was just this constant kind of, I would have all these awarenesses of, you know, I need to stop doing these drugs I need to you know I remember the first time I did heroin I was like oh my god this is bad I can't be doing this again Mm -hmm. you know it was just I snorted it it was like oh it's okay I only snorted it it's not so bad and then the first time I used needles I was like okay this is really serious and by then I was actually getting very close to knowing for sure that I had to give this stuff up so I did stop using needles Mm -hmm. after only like four or five times that was pretty scary for a 19 year old right and then I got pregnant I was in a relationship with somebody it was an off and on very very unhealthy relationship is what it was Mm -hmm. I was just more obsessed than anything with him ended up getting pregnant I was 20 years old he wasn't into the whole having a child thing necessarily he was on and off about it for a while he didn't think that he was mature enough or that he was ready to handle it and for some reason he thought I wasn't either Go figure. I don't know what he was thinking. So I think he was just kind of scared of adding a baby into the mix of what was already pretty insane. But for me, my pregnancy became the reason that I could finally give up that which had been really hindering everything I did in my life for so long. So I ended up you know, I didn't stop drinking throughout that pregnancy. I didn't drink like I had, except maybe once or twice. So I probably got drunk once or twice during that pregnancy, but I wasn't drinking As much, I stopped doing drugs. I completed my GED so that I had my high school. I decided that I was going to be a single mom. I was going to be a good single mom. And there, I just kind of decided to get my shit together for Mm -hmm. this baby. I think that as much as I've been seeking someone to love, I think more than anything, I wanted somebody to love me unconditionally and fully. And I had a sense that this little baby was going to do that. So in July 1981, my oldest daughter, Ashley, was born after a pregnancy where I really was quite proud of myself because I hadn't been doing drugs. And I'd only gotten really fall down drunk maybe once and drunker than I thought a pregnant person ought to be a couple of more times than that. And I'd had a lot of days where I hadn't drank at all or hadn't done the pills or the drugs. So when Ashley was born, there was a period of time where I kind of fell back into abusing everything that I had previously abused, but much more binge-like and sporadically. I would maybe, I'd say maybe in the first 18 months of her life, maybe four or five weekends where I'd kind of basically drop my daughter off with my mom and dad and say I'd be gone a few hours and, yeah, I'd never just be gone a few hours. Mm -hmm. I only stayed away the whole weekend once. And again, then, you know, we go back to here I am. I'm 21 years old. I'm a single mom. I'm so immature. I've never grown up. I've never, you know, I've never known how to deal with life. I was working. I'd always been able to hold a job even all through my crazy, addictive years. But, you know, my parents would never say anything. (laughs) I'd kind of come home. I remember that weekend that I stayed away all weekend and I came home and I was just so ashamed. and. You know, oh, my God, I felt terrible. You know, what kind of mother was I and what kind of daughter was I? And, you know, I could tell they were very angry with me by the facial expressions. But they didn't say a word. Hmm. You know, I look back now and I think that I wish that there was a way for us to have started the conversation. But there wasn't. So we just kept going. Anyway, I decided then I'd be a really good mom. I'd go back to school. I applied for it and was accepted into a university program. I went back and did one year of university when Ashley was just not even two years old. It was her first year of life, and I went to school, and I excelled. And I didn't drink hardly at all. I was smoking a little bit of dope, but not very much. And I wasn't using pills, and I wasn't doing any hard drugs. I did so well and I was just amazed and I thought oh you know what we didn't have the terms like sobriety or recovery back in 1981 or not that I'd known of and I'd never gone to an AA meeting so I didn't know that this was a thing Mm -hmm. I just knew there was when I used and when I did and I was having a lot of success with not using so I thought that that probably was the way to keep going and I kept trying to do that. Did pretty well until Ashley was two years old and her dad and I kind of had this on again off again silly thing and it it ended and it ended for good and I just went into this deep depression started using again and rather than go back to school to start my second year I used my student loan money I bought a batch of cocaine at this point I had been living back in Alberta I'd left the Yukon when I got pregnant, went down, had Ashley, went back to school. Things were going quite well until I decided that it was time to go back for second year. I needed more money than my student loan had enabled me to support ourselves for the first year. So I bought a big batch of cocaine, and I thought, I'll just run up to the Yukon and sell it, you know, triple, quadruple my money, and then we'll have lots of money, be more comfortable for my second year of university.
0: You know, anybody like a good who's plan. Ever, Reasonable. I know.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Except that anybody who has ever done cocaine probably knows how that story turned out. I went back to the Yukon. And I never did make it back to, to Alberta to do my second year of school and never did make very much money off of that cocaine either. So that now we have a child, you know, and I'm back in my serious heavy addiction. And fortunately for me, I was always surrounded by people who loved me, who weren't as messed up as I was. Some people might call them enablers. I call them my saviors. I think they saved my life and they certainly took care of my daughter while I continued to be a binge drug user and alcoholic. So it was kind of a couple of crazy years. From 1983 to 85, I got married, had another daughter, Taryn, mm-hmm. who many people know from our She Recovers project, of course. Married her father. Now I was in a relationship that was extremely unhealthy. It was abusive. He was an addict. I was an addict. We had these two beautiful girls. And yeah, life became really complicated. Some pretty low bottoms in that relationship. And during those years, left by 1987. And again, I was always really using and abusing drugs and alcohol and then spending long, long periods of time trying not to use I'd go weeks, even, you know, a couple of months and then it would just be full on again for just a couple of days. And then, so I was always living my life in absolute shame and horror.
0: Mm-hmm. That's really what it came to so like, I'm going to so. ask you a quick question within your story. So when you say that you would kind of sober up for several weeks at a time, you know, and wanting to quit, you kind of said you were doing that all on your own, right? You weren't seeking out help from anyone. Were you telling anyone your story or did you know anyone at that point that had gotten sober or oh. was doing well?
1: Absolutely not. Okay. No, no, there was nothing. And I never looked at it as anything other than I'm just not going to, you know, smoke dope or actually, to be honest, I probably smoked more dope when I was trying to get off the booze and the pills and anything else that I was doing, but I would smoke dope because I didn't think dope was really, it wasn't like it was drugs <laughs> you know, to me. It was just kind of yeah. what people, do. it was just kind of there. <laughs> so
0: you were, so you were trying to do it like on yeah. sheer, like, I don't know if there's a better word than like willpower. Absolutely. Okay. That was it. That was it. And it didn't and, work. Yeah. And it wasn't working.
1: No, it didn't. Mm -hmm. It didn't. Because there were no resources. There wasn't a conversation about it anywhere, right? Not Mm -hmm. only did I not know anybody, but you wouldn't read about it in magazines. You weren't seeing it on television. The only movie that I can remember really seeing about it as even a teenager was this thing. And it was Eve Plum, I think. From the Ray Bunch, Mm -hmm. there was a movie... It might have been, it even been called Dawn, the Teenage Alcoholic. So it was like an after school special? <laughs> yeah, it was. Absolutely. It was. It was I amazing. Mean, it, it's, it was in the 70s. So yeah, no, there was no real kind of discourse about it. It was my life. It had been yeah. my life since I was 17. You know, you use, you screw up, you hate yourself, you use again, you try to quit. And it just this horrible thing.
0: Well, for anyone that's listening who might not know, who was, you know, maybe born in the 90s, like the 70s and 80s, like everyone was doing cocaine. That was like drinking. It was like not a big deal.
1: Yeah, it was everywhere. And it was very addicting. And for women in particular, I mean, we liked it because we could party longer. It kept us sober longer. You know, we didn't eat for days if we did cocaine for days. So we were like 90 pounds. And, you know, the whole body image, disordered eating thing fit in really well with the cocaine scene. It was just nonsense. It was absolutely ridiculous. Anyway, it all came to a thud. In 1987, my relationship with my husband deteriorated to a point where I ended up in a women's transition home. And the counselor talked to me and said, it's not just the abuse that your husband is leveling at you, you're abusing yourself, and what are you going to do about it? And ridiculous as it may seem, I just knew in that moment that she was right, and I needed to do something about it. So I promised her that this time, for sure, I was never going to use again. Mm Mm-hmm this was like the moment for me. And it was probably because it's the first person that I'd ever spoken to about it, that was a professional that could give me some of the information that I needed to make that decision and that commitment. And she was smart. She knew. Uh-huh. <laughs> she said, Let's make a deal. Let's make a little deal here. If you cannot do it on your own, if you can't stay for, I think she said something like two weeks, would you agree to go to treatment? And I was like, well, I'm going to do it, but it's like, sure, (laughs) Sure. (laughs) if that's what you need in order for me to get out of here and get on with my life, I will do that. Yes. If I can't do it on my own, but I'm going to do it on my own. I've done it many times for many days. So
0: yeah, I don't um, need your treatment. Watch this.
1: Yeah. Mm -hmm. No. And you know, I gave her my word and I don't know why my word meant something at that time because a week later I phoned her crying and saying, okay, I can't do it. Mm -hmm. I had drank 18 strawberry apple cider and lost feeling in my arms yeah so I went to treatment and in treatment I just started listening to people and educating myself and my counselor there said you know that you can't go back into a marriage that is abusive where there's drugs and alcohol and so I called my husband and I said I can't come home if you're going to be abusive and he said I'm not going to be abusive And then I said, I can't come home if there's going to be drugs and alcohol in the house. And he said, so where are you going to move? (laughs) Where are you going to go? Yeah. So that was that. And that was the beginning. I left. I went home. I got my children. And I moved to here, actually, to Victoria, British Columbia. I did stay here. There's quite a few moves left in my story. But... I came here with the girls, and I started to go to a Narcotics Anonymous. I went to just a couple of meetings here, and then I met a guy, and he was a big pot smoker, so I started smoking pot, and I smoked pot for two years, and then I realized that that was a problem, too. I went back to treatment and just went back to N.A. and stayed clean and sober, free from all drugs, including alcohol, for 11 years, so mm-hmm. I kind of figured it out. Yeah. Sorry. My story takes so long because there's so many twists and turns and moves. I moved so much. It was ridiculous, which is pretty common for those of us who are lower bottom Mm addicts, less common for high bottom functioning people who, you know, kind of don't have to leave the neighborhood, let alone.
0: Yeah. Well, I I think yes and no. And I do want to get to, because you had a relapse in 2000 that I want you to talk about, but I think mm -hmm. that to speak to that, because I know there's some people listening who are like, well, I would never do heroin or, you know, I would never get that bad. And I think, you know, because my story looks different from yours. And in just in that using drugs and alcohol didn't get to that level. However, and I've said this before in the, I wrote about it and I talked about it in the very first episode of the series that I did. To me, and you mentioned being a little bit of a love addict, I was a lot of a love addict. I describe it as like I was a raging love addict and a codependent like no Mm -hmm. other. And I also struggled with an eating disorder. So I felt like I was coping that way. And I just didn't need drugs or alcohol yet. Yes. And for what happened for me is that when my eyes opened up to how bad my codependence and my love addiction was, and that was my therapist pointed that out, you know, cause I had gone to her to talk to her about other stuff. And then I had also gone to her to try to save and fix my relationship that I was in for a really long time. And she mm-hmm. kind of turned the mirror on me and said, well, Andrea, you know, he's not all to blame. You have some issues too. And I was like, how dare you, you know? <laughs> So once I started to, to work on healing myself from codependence and love addiction, I never told her about my eating disorder until much later. It was like I was holding on to that just you oh, know, yeah. for sheer. It was the last thing I was holding on to. But when I started to heal from the codependence and the love addiction, my alcohol consumption shot up. Yes. And I mean, it was almost scary, Dawn, how quickly the progression went. And I was proud of myself for working on that other stuff. And it actually, thankfully, because I had already gone in the direction of, you know, recovery, I quickly realized what was happening. And to be honest with you, I was kinda pissed. Because I was yeah. like, you mean to tell me now I have to quit drinking. Yeah. Well, but I think for some of us, like our drugs and alcohol, I mean, it's just a symptom. You know that like yeah. the quantity may not be that much, but what are the other behaviors that you're using that are just as addictive and that you're getting high off of?
1: Well, exactly. And that's the message too. And it isn't only what are the other behaviors, what are the feelings?
0: Yes. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: So mm-hmm. I know when I share my story, especially now, you know, i fairly successful in my business and we have this passion project that is all about recovery. I have a PhD, you know, I live in a crooked little house, but it's cute. You know, I mean, most people would think that this woman seems to have her shit together. Mm-hmm. I was actually thinking it in my head. I'm like, she's got her shit together. <laughs> yeah. And so then, you know, they hear my story or my history and they think, well, I don't relate to that. Like, that's not me. But you know, if people take a moment and think about being a young, confused woman or a young, confused girl or an anxious girl, or a, I don't know who I am, or, you know, lonely or mostly confused you know I was just confused I didn't understand life and how it worked and petrified in social situations Mm -hmm. and like I said the anxiety and the way that it weaves through my life and my story it was not really apparent to me until I kind of hit the wall with workaholism five years ago and started looking back and doing a history of my anxiety because my therapist said that would be a good idea and it was like oh my gosh you know I think anxiety is what led me to the first drug and also just the relationships and the codependency and yeah part of what I think it's dangerous about us telling our stories sometimes is that it gives permission to people to not relate and yeah. they go, okay, well,
0: she was really bad. And so you on, do comparative okay. Comparative storytelling. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's difficult. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, like recovery became my life. I got really, really into it and I am a member of a twelve step program and I really embraced that. It gave me everything I needed. Today I'm a strong advocate for twelve step recovery and I'm an equally strong advocate for anything else that works for you, right? We have a lot of kind of underlying premises of she recovers, but believe so strongly that we all need to be supported to find and follow our own individualized pathways and patchworks, right? That's really, really important to me. And it, it took me some years to get there. I started out with just 12 step and Mm -hmm. just evolved into, you know, lots of therapy and and over the last number of years, lots of other modalities, including yoga and mindfulness and community and connection and all the things that we do online recovery, these different things. So, yeah, from 1989, when I put down the pot, Mm -hmm. went back to school you know, moved back to Alberta, again, all over the place. Went back to school, finished a degree in women's studies, did a degree, and master's in women's history, and then uh, did a PhD in healthcare policy, focusing on gender and caregiving. And yeah, life was just beautiful. Met a man in recovery. We'll celebrate 25 years of marital bliss. Not so much all the time, obviously. <laughs> in December, uh, he's my best friend and a wonderful partner and helped raise my children. He has two boys too, so we have a big family now. Lots of grandkids starting to come on the scene. That's pretty magnificent. So yeah, I went back to school. Things were going all in the right direction. had a few brushes with cancer, both my own and my mom. So my mom was diagnosed with adult leukemia in 1998, and Mm -hmm. she died in April 2000. And that's when, although I had 11 years clean just about at that time. And I hadn't been going to a lot of meetings. I hadn't really been too in touch with my therapist. I hadn't really been taking care of myself. I'd been living in my head. You know, I'd started a PhD and that's what happens for me, right? I move into my head and it's a dangerous place to be if I don't remember to jump back down to my heart once in a while. And I just wasn't kind of in touch with what was going on. It was quite traumatic actually when somebody is diagnosed terminal. And, you know, in my mom's case, we ended up in a place where one day the doctor said, I'm sorry, there's nothing more we can do. You've got three weeks to live. And she lived seven because she was like that. Mm -hmm. But when she died, I think just the stress and the trauma and the grief overtook me. And so, you know, in the hours after she died, I took custody of her narcotics. And about four or five days later, when I just could no longer handle the pain and the agony of the loss, I started to take her pills. And I don't know. I mean, I took them as prescribed to my Mm -hmm. dead mother, um, but I didn't consider it a relapse at the time. I was just coping, and nobody else knew that I was hiding in the drugs. I wasn't doing it to have a good time or party. And after two days, I remember just looking at the pill bottle, thinking, okay, now this feels familiar. Mm -hmm. There aren't very many pills left here. I have two choices. I can keep taking these last few and go to the doctor and get some more which I knew I could do, or I could just throw these down the toilet and stop. And I chose the latter. And I remember just having this moment of my mom's face, you know, coming in and her voice and knowing how proud she was of my recovery, which she never really understood necessarily. She never knew the true extent of my addiction, though, either. So I just thought, no, I wasn't going to dishonor her memory. And I just kind of, that was it back on the path. Didn't go back to meetings. I did start seeing grief counselors and processing things again. And four years later, still not really working on a recovery path. My younger sister, eight years younger, hit a bottom and showed up in my house. And I took her back to a 12-step meeting for drug addicts and fell in love with that program all over again. And at that time, decided I was going to just kind of get back on the recovery bandwagon. And so I have. And in May, I celebrated 16 years again. And I'm just one of those people that I recognize that that was a relapse. But for me, that didn't wipe out the 11 years previous, mm-hmm. other than like kind of a date where people give me a cake, which yeah. I'm not eating sugar. So I don't won't be eating those <laughs> cakes probably in the future. But yeah, I do look at it as an important point in my recovery because it eventually
0: it did bring me back to my recovery. Right. So, mm-hmm. wow, that's a long story. Wow. Well, it's such a great story. And I think all of it is important. And I'm glad that you stopped and pointed out that some people might be listening and think like, well, I can't really relate to a lot of what she was saying because, you know, I would never let it get that bad or I've never done drugs or whatever the Mm -hmm. comparing is. But I think there were several things that you said that I would like to kind of touch on. And I would like you to say more about this because I'm making up what you were feeling and I don't want to do that. But when you were talking about taking those pills and in my experience, I never went down the path of a lot of drugs, I Mm -hmm. definitely think that it would have been in my future. And I look back and I can probably count on two hands how many times I did cocaine. And what's kind of funny is because when I would do it, I remember consciously thinking, this is the most amazing thing I've ever done in my life. Like exclamation mark. Right. And I probably shouldn't do it again because it was like, I kind of knew even back then, like in my twenties that like, I am in love with this drug. And yeah. I cannot, and I never bought it. It was always just kind of around and, yeah. you know, in the bathroom stalls and at parties. And, yeah. Yeah. and I just, I'm glad that I never went too far down that path with that. Yeah. And I remember this must've been not very long before I got sober. This was towards the end for me where, you know, I was starting to buy boxes of wine instead of bottles. Cause the bottles were just, you know, <laughs> not enough. My husband had had shoulder surgery and had a prescription for painkillers and he left the bottle of the painkillers. We have a basket on our kitchen countertop that we would put keys and like loose change and yes. stuff in. And that's where it was. And my husband is the type who doesn't like the way those painkillers make him feel.
1: <laughs>
0: right. who does that? He's like a unicorn. <laughs> I know. And so he would take like very few of them and he would leave him out You know, so to me, that was like a waste. And so I would drink and take these painkillers. And I remember I had a very similar moment that you did, although I hadn't stepped into recovery yet at this point. And it was in his name. And I remember thinking, well, I could probably get a refill because I think there was refills left. But what if I call it in? And then when I go to the pharmacy, what if they say like, do you have permit? Like, I didn't know how that worked. Right. And I was too afraid of getting caught and so embarrassed and ashamed that my husband would be like, why are you getting a refill on my painkillers? You know? So yeah. that's the only thing that stopped me, but that was also a huge indicator to me. Normal people probably don't do that. You know, that's yeah. probably not a good idea, which brings me to my question for you is that for me pills kind of just allowed me to go on a mini vacation. For me, life was just hard. All of it, all of the feelings, not just, you know, like grief and anxiety, but like even joy and bliss and love. I felt so overwhelmed with feelings because I grew up in a very similar house that you described. We just didn't have words around feelings and emotions. And I just wanted to for lack of a better term, I wanted to take the edge off, like to soften the edges because I was so afraid of looking at the edges and what was underneath those edges. That's really what I wanted. Was it similar for you?
1: Oh, totally. Yeah. I just didn't want to be present. When my mom died and I took the pills, I just wanted to sleep really. But of course, Mm -hmm. you know, on some narcotics, such as the ones I was taking, you kind of go on a little trip before you sleep and then you're kind of in and out of dreamland. And it's, yeah, I mean, it was comfy and cozy and it felt familiar to me, right? It felt so familiar to me. And I think that that's what frightened me about it is it felt so comfy. And I knew that I could go back and live there. But, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, as much as I didn't want to dishonor my mom's memory, I didn't want my kids to have to bury their mom. Yeah. And I had a very strong sense that that's what would happen because the grief was so much that I knew that if that's how I was going to deal with the grief, then I was going to have to do a lot of pills Yeah. because I wasn't going to drink. I mean, I lost the desire to drink the moment I went to treatment. I haven't had a desire to drink since, not Mm -hmm. once. And people go, I don't believe that. And I go, well, I don't care if you believe that. I haven't. So, yeah, it was a really important moment to me. And I think what it signifies for me, too, is that we always know we have intuition. We have, you know, our gut feelings.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's just that we don't listen or we just numb out so that we can't access what we really think we ought to be doing. And I think for me, recovery is a lot about kind of getting back in touch with my intuition, right? So that these decisions, you know, I know I work with a lot of women now who are, you know, I just I kind of... I knew I shouldn't. You know, that's almost what they always say. I knew I shouldn't, and then I just did. And it's like, yeah, let's go back to the knew I shouldn't part. Mm -hmm. Like, let's Mm -hmm. see how you listen to that. So, yeah, I just feel really, really fortunate that I made the decision that I did at that time and that I decided to pursue my grief rather than try and numb it. You know, I still do, right? I still like grief. That's a big part of who I am today. Not every day, but... I embrace my grief. Like I take to my bed around the time of either my mom's birthday in April or the time where she passed away, which is later in April. I always have like a dead mother day. Yeah. And you know, I take to my bed and I you know, I cry and I just feel and I just kind of go there. And then I'm good. And you know, I get up and I keep going about my life trying to honor her memory by being the best person I can be and the best mom and now the best grandmother and yeah, it's pretty good.
0: I love that story. I mean, of course not that you have grief days, but I think that's just part of being human. And Mm -hmm. what I hear from a lot of women is that I remember distinctly, there was a woman who said to me, I feel like I have this black hole of pain and I am so afraid to start digging into it. I hear that a lot. And I remember that. I remember thinking, if I walk into this fire, I don't think I can come out alive. I think that it will swallow me whole and eat me and kill me. And I was so terrified to really, really look at the heartbreak and the grief and the fears that I had. I just didn't know what was on the other side. I just didn't know if I could survive it. For me, it was about self-trust, which I never had any. I didn't know what that looked like. And I just was scared. And I think a lot of my recovery has looked like telling my story and I'm never going to sit here and tell people that they should start a blog or publicly come and tell everybody on Facebook or whatever. But I mean, it's just like that one person, you know, like you had that one person that reached out and was like, okay you know, here's what needs to happen for you. And, and that's, you know, why I like to have these public conversations because I want people to know like that there are other women out there that like you were saying, might not have the same exact details of our story, but we feel the same. And I am living testimony and you're living testimony that you can walk through hell and walk through the fire and come out, not just okay. You're going to come out, bruised up and (laughs) with scars. But for me, I can't imagine going back there. I can't imagine going back to the walled up, closed off, absent, numbed out person that I was before. You know what I was on? I was terrified of the world and I was terrified of myself. I was terrified of everything.
1: Wow. Yeah. I hear that a lot. I don't know that I lived in terror as much as in anxiety, but I understand. Mm -hmm. And I hear what you're saying. And so when you did kind of go into that deep black hole, I'm going to guess that you didn't do it alone. No. right. you
0: know, what's interesting is that when the times that I have gone into the deep black hole, I was equal parts scared of doing it alone and scared of doing it with someone else. Because like, you know, and you have to pick the right people, you know, you can't just do it like with your hairdresser that you just met five minutes ago, which I've tried (laughs) or the barista at Starbucks. These are people that you trust. And I hear from a lot of women. Well, I don't have those friendships anymore for whatever reason. But I mean, that's where a trusted counselor or therapist or clergy person or someone like that. That's what they're for. Well, and there's like tribes and tribes of us mm-hmm.
1: now, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, think about all of the online groups and the the, meetings that are free. The things that we do. I mean, honestly, so many, and it is just really about finding that one person or a room full or whatever it is right we like to say that we do recover out loud if we're ready when we're ready we don't have to it's not a requirement of recovery but when we do recover out loud other women who are struggling can find us yeah you know and whether they relate to my story or not i can introduce you to hundreds of other women who have a story more similar to yours
0: yeah i always like to say we saved you a seat you're yeah, always welcome. So, I have a yes. question for you because I get asked this question a lot too. So, what yeah. advice do you have for someone who might be listening to this series but they're not quite 100% sure they need to quit? So, in other words, how do you think someone knows?
1: Well, you know, honestly, I think we know. I do. We know what that means. <laughs> we know, but it's so deep down and we're so kind of numbed out that that knowing never really makes it all the way to our brain. And that's what is so confusing for us, right? Our intuition battles with our brain. Mm -hmm. And so there's a few things. I think I loved what happened for me, which was I was basically given a challenge, right? Okay, then stop. And if you try to stop and you can't, or if you try to stop and you do, but every waking moment is obsessed with focusing and obsessing over the fact that you're not drinking or using or whatever it is, that's a good indicator. I do think it's a good idea to just have a discussion with a professional. Uh Somebody who understands addiction. Try to moderate. You know, like if it isn't about quitting, then don't. If you don't know, maybe then try to moderate. Sometimes even then. What happens for a lot of people, happened for me, you know, I hear it kind of happens for you, is when we try to change a behavior like that, we're trying to moderate. Things get worse sometimes, right? And like that's kind of an indicator. So I guess it's try anything and everything to, the research, like figure out what's out there, what's available. There's so many wonderful online opportunities now. There's books, you know. I think about Annie Grace's book, which is really so much it's called This Naked Mind, and she also has courses and free videos on her. Did
0: you say Annie Grace? Annie Grace. Yeah. Okay, we'll link up to that. Yeah. And she
1: really focuses on you know people who are just curious about their drinking, mm-hmm. right? And you know, kind of explore the curiosity. And then of course you know Holly. Holly home. was on, yeah, hip yeah, sobriety, Holly home and podcast. Laura, so hip sobriety, yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, just kind of there, and then there's the bubble hour and mm-hmm. yes, all those Jean McCarthy's coming on soon. Oh my gosh, mm-hmm. I love Jean. She's been to our retreats, and I love her. We work together on a number of different things, and she's amazing. So yeah, just kind of explore, do the research, just be open to the idea that your relationship to alcohol or other substances can change and you can meld it into you know the relationship that you want to have with it or try to you may not be addicted like there's always that possibility too right Mm -hmm. there's there's a spectrum of abuse there's people who just kind of casually drink or not drink they can take it or leave it there's those who drink a little bit more than they want to themselves but then they can stop or they can just kind of tailor it back it it kind of depends on our brain and where our brain chemistry is at with it whether we're truly addicted or not so yeah. there's it's kind of wide range just don't be afraid of the questions don't be afraid of the of trying and to reach out and be gentle with yourself uh-huh. unless your life is in crisis and your family's life is in danger and you're driving around drunk with your kids you know like then don't just be curious and take your time there go and get some help like yeah. i think that it's the degree right not only because they're worth it Because that's the only way I got clean was because this baby that I was going to have was worth it. But because you're worth it,
0: Mm -hmm. we're all worth Mm -hmm. it,
1: right? We are all worth it.
0: Absolutely, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that every single person who's contemplating, you know, who hears the whisper of maybe there's a problem. I don't think every single one of them is addicted and needs to be sober forever and ever ever. I don't know that. I was that person who, like, I wanted an answer from somebody. I wanted when I googled, "Am I an alcoholic?" I wanted Google to tell me yes or no. Like, I didn't want to have to figure it out on my own, because I think for me, I was still holding out hope that I wasn't and that I could moderate. And I don't know if I ever tried. I just tried to quit. My friend Courtney, who was also on, she gave me kind of the same challenge. She said, well, quit for 30 days and just see what happens. Yeah. And I white knuckled it for six days and was angry and anxious and broke after six days and drank. And then I was like, all right. And then I kind of went on like a binge. And at that point, my husband, we were in the process of moving from San Diego to Utah and he was gone for a couple of weeks and that's when I just was like, I had no supervision. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Not yeah. that he ever even questioned my drinking, but I just was like, Ooh, buying boxes of Franzia. And yes. Oh gosh, it wasn't great. But I think that, you know, we just, we just got back from a cruise. I was sort of thinking Stop. about every every once in a while. I think I'm at the point to five years in where I know I can't drink. So I'm beyond the point of questioning, like, well, maybe I can. But now when I think about drinking, Like this happened when we were on the cruise, the first couple days of the cruise, it was a shit show. Like it was so much anxiety and overwhelm. It's a long story. I'll, I'll talk about it some Mm -hmm. other time. But at one point we walked by the pool and there was this waiter and he had a tray full of fruity drinks, which I never even really liked very much. But I was in, at that moment, I was in so much overwhelm and anxiety and it was hot and they were like on ice. And I thought to myself, I had that moment of like, just like imagining myself walking by and just grabbing one. I mean, yeah. it was like a split second. I didn't even want one, but then yeah. it, w- it made me think to myself, if I was drinking, this is kind of the good news. I think if I yeah. was still drinking on this trip, I would be mad that it was kind of socially unacceptable for me to drink at nine in the morning. Mm-hmm. Like I would be wanting to drink the entire time. Yeah, I, <laughs> I would not. Be present with my children. I would not be having fun with my husband. My primary focus on that week long cruise would have been booze. Yeah, I absolutely. Guarantee it. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I know. And same, uh, It's all inclusive the same type of idea, right? I've only been to all inclusives in my recovery. Thank God.
0: This Thank one God. wasn't even all inclusive. And from what oh, I understand, so you have to pay of... for your
1: booze on trips. So
0: yeah, but still I wouldn't have even care. Yeah. I wouldn't even care. I would have just been like, I'm on vacation. Yeah. Uh, it's a, I looked forward to kind of like the free for alls. Like anytime there was a, like a Christmas party or, you know, my husband's work party just, Anytime where it was a little bit more socially acceptable for me to drink more than usual, I took complete advantage of that. And so that for me, I know that I can't moderate. There's no such thing for me. I'm glad you know it. Yeah,
1: it's true. It's a good knowing. It's a good Mm -hmm. knowing for sure.
0: Yeah, it is. Tell me Dawn, what advice you have for someone who's in their first, say like six months to a year of sobriety or even in their first 30 days.
1: Well, you know, just recognize that you don't have to do it alone. I think that that's the main thing. You know, when I got clean and sober, there were no online resources. There was no online. Mm -hmm. So really reach out and find somebody, you know, just find somebody. I, I think that there are online groups you can find going to all these sober bloggers. We have 12 sober bloggers coming to our New York City event next May. And so if you go to our website, there's a blog post there that introduces you to those 12 sober bloggers. And if you go online, you can kind of follow them and read all of their things. You know, Holly's on their Laura's on their Jean's on There's Some of the people we've talked about and so many other wonderful women, you know, just kind of try and connect with a message, try and mm-hmm. connect with somebody. And I say online because it's easy, right? It's right. kind of, you can do that from your home and you don't have to go out. And But more than that, then try and connect, whether it's you know, trying to connect with somebody in life, like in real life. It's difficult because you don't want to, you know, shout from the rooftops, Hey, I'm just entering recovery. Who can help me out? Mm-hmm. Who do I know here? Mm-hmm. But a lot of people do kind of might've heard of somebody they know who knows somebody who was in recovery. So people in recovery, regardless of whether they're in 12 step recovery or they're just doing it our own way, we really want to share the message that we do recover. So if you suspect, you know, somebody who may have gotten sober or clean or, Whatever you're looking to do, try and find a person that you can talk to, or identify somebody online in one of these groups. Reach out even to the bloggers. Just make a connection. It is all about a connection. Connect with somebody who can maybe then point you in the direction. There are some online courses now that you can sign up, like Holly's Hip Sobriety. Is you sign up and you get you're in a, a Facebook group, a private Facebook group, so you're you're with a cohort of people who are trying to do the same thing as you are. Go to a professional that almost every city. Smaller centers, of course, won't have the same services, but most cities will have a drug and alcohol addiction service of some sort. I know in Canada we do, and I know you do in the States as well, or else a treatment center. You can contact a treatment center. You don't have to go to treatment, but you can talk to somebody who can point you in the direction of resources Mm -hmm. in your community. If you have a doctor who you think understands you and hopefully understands addiction, that's a good thing to do. I think just kind of set yourself some small goals, try and do it. You know, we have this thing, do it just for today. And, you know, (laughs) and if you're in your, and if you don't make it one day, then don't say that's it. I can't do it. Try the second day. There's so many books. We have resources on our website. I know you share resources. All of the bloggers who you'd find on She Recovers share resources. Mm-hmm. Arm yourself with information. So three things probably. Arm yourself with information. Try and make a connection. I say online just because it's just so what we do, right? Yeah. You, know, you can have that with you anywhere, right? You can get an app. There's apps. You can have an app that will give you encouragement. And then try and connect with somebody in real life. Do something mindful. I guess I'm going over three. Maybe (laughs) try a a yoga class or a meditation, which is pretty hard if you're trying to quit. You might be a little bit jittery the first days, but on the other hand, it's really helpful. And then, yeah, just kind of let's round it out at five. Perfect. I'm a real essential oils person. So the anxiety that I've been dealing with my whole life now, I deal with with essential oils mm-hmm. you, know, you can just kind of and i have like this roller ball thing of, of this it's a doTERRA product that's called breathe in the states and Easy Air here in canada i take it in my purse all the time in my pocket and i stick it up my nose it's like i snort <laughs> i'd have a snort of this oil like, all through the day and it has nothing to do with the things i used to put in my nose it's uh-huh. the complete opposite and so yeah just kind of some try and do some holistic type things right i guess is what i'm saying I think Holly, I know Holly and others have toolboxes, kind of recovery Mm -hmm. toolboxes. I know Jean does too. Look for resources
0: and they're out there. Educate yourself. They're
1: out there for sure.
0: I love that. And you know, that's actually something I've been trying to do more of is mindfulness. And I've talked about it a lot on my podcast. My people know my tumultuous relationship with yoga and meditation. Cause I'm, I know a lot of people can probably relate to this. Like I want to think and do my way through anything but feeling my way through it and tapping into it's just a little, I'm like, Oh, you know, it's been kind of a street fight for me. And, but it's, I've come a long way, baby. And the meditation and yoga is I've gotten back into it. And it's something I totally agree with you. It can be so helpful because, and you mentioned it too, when you were saying that you, when you had that relapse in 2000, that you, you know, one of the things that, and I think I'm interpreting this correctly. One of the things that kind of contributed to that was you said you were you were all up in your head. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: Forever. Still am, right? I mean, I turned into a, my most recent story. We don't have time for it. Maybe another day, but I became a workaholic. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I ended up. My mom died. I rushed through my PhD. I finished that, and then the moment that I was finishing my PhD, I got cancer, and then I kind of went through a year of chemo and survived that. And then I was so behind in my life at 45 years old that I 45 years old that I really started going fast in my life, and I ended up five years ago hitting the wall with workaholism and started my recovery all over again, which is actually turns into the story if she recovers, but. Yeah, so it is about you know I am a woman who thinks too much, mm-hmm. just like so many of us are women who drink too much. I am that woman who thinks too much. And yes, uh, me too. I do. I need to really work every day at getting out. I like to think about you know if I get into my heart, I'm good. I'm happier. I'm joyful. If I get into my gut and my intuition, then I'm smarter. <laughs> so
0: hmm. I like that. Know,
1: I work that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I love that. Okay, I have one more question for you before we wrap up. And and for anyone yeah. that's listening, I don't know if we mentioned this. Yeah, and this will be linked up in the show notes. But she recovers is that sherecovers dot com easy peasy. If you're if you're it's actually right.
1: it's dot co, which is confusing .co. and weird. Yeah. www.sherecovers.co and she recovers on Facebook and we're over 252,000 on Facebook, but we have room for many, many more.
0: (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Saved you a seat. Okay. One more question for you. So I am asking, I think almost everyone the same question and I would like to know what's one thing right now that you're proud of and one thing that you're struggling with. Okay. That's pretty easy.
1: I'm proud. Well, I'm, you know what, I'm really proud that I chose recovery as a mom. Today I have two beautiful daughters. Ashley is 36 and Taryn is 31. Taryn is in recovery She's my partner and she recovers. She's a wonderful yoga for recovery guru. She's, you know, kind of blazing the way for all sorts of younger women to kind of follow the lead into recovery from addiction and all sorts of different things. Right. We're all recovering from something we always say. Mm -hmm. So I'm very proud of her and what she's doing. And my daughter, Ashley, just gave birth to my first granddaughter who I have a step granddaughter who's just beautiful and lovely. And it's not that there's these real distinctions between them, except that when your own daughter gives birth to a baby girl, There's something a little bit different about that. And so Marley is going to be eight months in just a couple oh of days. And, and so I'm most proud that I raised my girls in recovery mm-hmm. so that they, I um, mean, Taryn ended up with an addiction problem and a codependency problem more than that. But Ashley is addiction-free. She's you know, she got this beautiful baby girl who's never going to see her mom addicted, never going to see her grandmother addicted, never going to see her aunt in addiction. So what I'm most proud of is that I stopped the cycle and that we changed the course of our family's lives. And that's what I'm most proud of. What I'm struggling with right now is overwhelm.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: she Recovers is taking off like
0: ugh,
1: so exciting and so much is going on. And I actually, it's not my full-time job, right? I'm a consultant and I have a full-time career. So I'm struggling with knowing when it's time to give up my day job. And with that comes the struggles that I have with workaholism and doing too much and mm. overwhelm. So I'm, I'm a little bit there right now. So yeah. that's my struggle
0: at the moment. But Thank you for your honesty and vulnerability. It's much appreciated. Yeah. So that about wraps it up, everyone. Thank you for staying with us. Again, all of the show notes, the things that were mentioned over the course of the last hour can be found at yourkickasslife.com forward slash R5. Or just hop on over to she co. And Dawn, thank you so much for this time together and sharing your story and helping so many people that are listening, whether they are thinking about recovery or are deep in recovery or know someone in recovery. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Andrea, it's been a pleasure. I've been wanting to connect with you for many years. So this is really awesome. And thank you very much for, thank you for the service that you, that you are doing in the world. It's, uh, you know, we're stronger together, right?
0: Absolutely. It is my pleasure. So everyone until next time, I will see you out in cyberspace. Bye-bye.